Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, I wanted to let you know that this episode mentions suicide, and if you or someone you know is struggling, there's a new number to reach out to for support. 988 launched on July 16th, and it will connect you with a trained crisis counselor who can provide direct support and also help you find local resources. Another important resource is the Trans Lifeline. You can reach them at 1-877-565-8860. This episode came out of a personal experience. A few months ago, my partner got word of a tragedy in his family. One of his uncles was hit and killed by a car, and another uncle was in the hospital. After the initial shock and sadness and all of the logistics of planning to fly back to see his family, there was another layer, a layer of concern and trepidation about how his family would be around him. And then right after the concern and trepidation came something else, anger, anger that he even needs to wonder how he'll be received. Anger that there's a question of whether his family will use the correct name and pronouns of how they will talk with and about him. All of this because he's trans. Just thinking about it now, I can still tap into that anger. Anger that my partner doesn't get to just try and feel the grief without also having to think through what he'll do or say if someone uses the wrong name or refuses to affirm his identity. This experience inspired me to reach out to today's guest. I met Everett through Dougie Center a few years ago when he joined one of our peer grief support groups for young adults. At that point, Everett was grieving for his father, who died when Everett was 12, and also for his brother, who died when Everett was in his 20s. Most recently, Everett's grandmother, who he was extremely close with, died this past winter. While Everett and I do get into how two major aspects of his identity, growing up poor and being trans, interact with his grief, We also discuss so many other layers, things like how he learned to push his grief aside when his father died, and what it's been like to try and access that grief now as a young adult, and how he's reckoned with grieving for his brother, someone he had a conflicted and ambivalent relationship with. Throughout it all, we highlight the ways that different aspects of identity, especially those that are marginalized, add to the emotional and mental load of those who are grieving leading to questions and complications and burdens that others never even have to think about. Everett, thank you so much for everything you had to do to get to the point where you were like, yes, I will be on Grief Out Loud with you. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm happy it's happening and we'll see how it goes. (laughs) We'll check in at the end of the conversation, see if happy is still the answer. All right. Let's start the way we do in one of our peer grief support groups. Introduce yourself the way you would uh, in group. Sure. Uh, I would say, hi, my name is Everett. I use he and they pronouns. Uh, My dad died in February of 2005. 
my brother died in August of 2017, and my grandmother died in January of this year, 2022. So with having had three people in your life die, and then also knowing that grief comes up for a variety of different losses in our lives, I'm curious today, which or what grief is kind of most on your heart, most on your mind? Yeah, it certainly ebbs and flows. Um, Actually, this week, it's been kind of wild because I found out that one of somebody who I used to be friends with um, and more so have a detached relationship now, um, more of like a friend of a friend, uh, I found out he was missing this week. Um, And one of my friends was called to get contact information for somebody in his family. Uh, And he was missing for about 24 hours, a little over 24 hours. And he was found and he's alive. But there was some concern about uh, suicide there. And just that, you know, feeling that anxiety there reminded me a lot of my friend David, uh, who passed away in 2017 by suicide as well. Um, And he was missing And at the time, I didn't have the additional context of of suicide until after he was found and after that news was shared publicly. But uh, just that sort of gut sinking feeling of knowing a person is missing and having very little like control, like being physically far away and having very little and what I could do felt like a punch to the gut. Um, But yeah, David was really awesome, sweet guy, almost like a second father to me. So This week, it's been like, how does my brain work? I don't know how to function uh, anymore. But I'm grateful that uh, this friend of a friend is is physically okay. Just an example of how like a new engagement with the idea, even the possibility of grief can bring back so much older grief. Absolutely. It's like, I think that was like a very, maybe more so obvious for me connection to another person and and my grief, but sometimes it's really subtle things too. Everett, remind me, how old were you when your dad died? I was 12. Since you were 12 to the age you are now, you know, you've had these three deaths in your family, plus other deaths in your community. With your dad and your brother and your grandmother, how how does the grief feel similar, different? Like, how do you relate to the grief for each of them in different ways? That's a really good question. My, my grief, so I'm 29 now. Um, my grief has certainly changed shape and weight over time. It plays a role into how I've been able to grieve for each of them and how much I've let myself feel feelings and grieve. I've gone months and even years without allowing myself to feel anything, at least consciously feel anything uh, about my dad or, or my brother. I think partly due to my age, the timing, life context. Like when I was 12, I really wasn't given the space or the language to grieve my father. When I was 24, my brother died and I wasn't allowed time off from like a brand new job. And then I started going to grief group at 26, which really started giving me some space. You know, if anything, I'm going to sit there for the whole time and I'll be present for those two weeks. Um, But really started giving me space and permission to start peeling back some of the layers. And now I've been in grief group for a little over three years, um, which I think has given me space and allowed myself to be more present with my grief ongoing. With my grandmother's death in January, I think really skills built from going to grief group, I was able to be mindful 
and present when it came to discussing her death um, before it happened. Like I got a little bit of notice uh, that she was on the decline. And then after it happened, you know, I was able to make decisions and choices I wanted to uh, regarding her funeral and her services, what I wanted to say, uh, which really allowed me, I think, this time around to build a healthier relationship with my grief um, and just yeah, allow it to be present. Ongoing, my, my dad and my grandma feel most present with me. I'm often reminded of, of them in some way, shape or form, at least once a day. Um, and even behind me, I have some photos uh, over there with me and my dad. I think the least accessible grief for me is my grief in relation to my brother. Um, he's, he was out of the picture in my life for more than half of my life. In a way, I can kind of pretend that he hasn't died. He's simply living further away. I think that's also a challenge with the long distance type of grief. I often have to remind myself that I will not be able to contact him in the ways that I would otherwise, um, and that he's not here anymore. I don't know why this just popped into my head, but is it, it seems like, and this is a strange word to say about it, but it almost seems like you're, you're kind of proud of yourself for how you're engaging with your grandmother's death and your grief from all the things that you've learned by like forcing yourself to come to grief group and be <laughs> present with the feelings for an hour and a half every other week. Does that feel accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I think really just being in that space, even though I'm, I might not talk at all, or I might talk for five minutes in you know the grand scheme of a meeting, um, I, I have a lot of things I take away and absorb from what other people share. So definitely thinking about funerals and, and transitions and services and want, knowing that that was something from hearing what other people have shared in their own experience and also just being an adult and being somebody who has chosen, you know, fortunately or unfortunately to help coordinate uh, the services this time around. I, I made choices about how I wanted to participate. And part of that is traveling, you know, across the country to Connecticut where my grandmother was. I don't know if, you know, if I didn't have these skills or haven't, you know, grown in this way, if I would have really even taken the time to fly over there, given my historical avoidance of grief um, and, you know, own anxiety. I think it could have been easier in some ways to just say, like, you know, I'm going to do my own thing over here. I'm not going to fly. I'm not going to put myself in that situation. And I know in my heart, like, that's okay. But Overall, I think looking at it now and what I've decided to to do, I don't have any regrets um, and I'm grateful that I did do it. So what inspired you? And maybe it wasn't inspiration. Maybe it was like reality. Um, <laughs> but what, what brought you to the place of being like, you know, I've spent a lot of my life not talking about grief, not feeling the feelings of grief. It's time. I need to start delving into this. I wish it, I wish it was a conscious thought like that. Um, I really had this like narrative in my brain that was like, you cried at your dad's wake and his funeral. So you've grieved, like you've, you felt sad a few times. You feel sad around the anniversary, like you're good. And I think that probably stems from my understanding of grief as a 12 year old, <laughs> like, you know, oh, people <laughs> cry sometimes and somebody dies and like, you know, that's it. Um, and not thinking about all the ways that grief ripples and, shows up in different aspects of life. So I really had a, a story down, like a narrative down when I went to therapy 
past adolescence, like early adulthood uh, and starting up with different therapists over time. It was like, you know, hi, my name's Everett. I lived with my mom and my dad and my two brothers until I was 11 years old and my parents separated. I moved in with my grandma and then my dad died when I was 12. And it's just like, you know, bup, 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 like no emotion, just line by line, like almost like going off of this rehearsed narrative that I have of my life. Um, and I, was, I was actually doing that in 2018, which, you know, mind you, this is after my brother died too. And I went through this spiel to this new therapist and she let me finish. But, you know, after I, after I said all the things, she was like, have you ever processed your dad's death? And I was like, so oblivious. I, I went to say yes, but I realized I, I've never really talked about it. Uh, I never had a space uh, thinking about processing as, as talking it out. I've never had that space. I've never given myself that space. I've never paid somebody for that space. Um, and it wasn't really until a year later that I got con connected to the Dougie Center, uh, really just by chance, uh, seeing somebody talk about it on Facebook um, and decided that, you know, free biweekly support group was accessible enough for me to give it a shot. So I'm really just going from there. Once you started kind of delving more into the processing of your dad's death and talking more about grief and being around other people talking about grief, what feeling or what aspect of a feeling kind of caught you the most off guard? That's a tough question. I think for me, like when I think about grief, I think about, you know, sadness. I think about this 12 year old like narrative, like, okay, you feel sad, you cry. Um, I now know that grief for me has a lot to do with anxiety and fear, but what I didn't really know about, or I felt almost as like a, a socially unacceptable thing is anger when it comes to grief uh, and how grief, you know, how, how somebody's death doesn't erase the bad things, the harm that they did uh, and estranged relationships, harmful relationships. And that's something that, I'm grateful to have a space where other folks have shared uh, either their anger about the situation or the anger with the person who has died. I'm still, you know, kind of figuring that out for myself. But I think in particular with my brother, he was somebody who caused a lot of harm of me, of my grandmother, of my other brother. So to the point where he wasn't in my life and I chose that, even though I was young, I didn't want to talk to him. So just really giving some air to that to say, you know, that's, that's okay. And I don't need to feel a wave of guilt about the reality of that situation. Like it, it is what it is, what it was. And now it's sort of just reconciling that to some degree after his death and, you know, not washing over that with some, you know, suns sunshine and rainbows, like, uh, you know, it's, it's so sad and, all these happy feelings like about his life when actually there was a lot of pain and harm that came with relationship to him. So I think allowing myself to feel that anger, to feel mixed emotions, to not feel overwhelmingly sad, but not still trying to suss it out has been a real, <laughs> real learning curve, real challenge, definitely caught me off guard. And, you know, I'm still, still figuring it out. I think step one is just knowing that that's even possible and to have permission that someone's death doesn't automatically edit their life. Right. You know, we can still reckon with the reality of what it was like to share the planet with that person. And they have also died. Absolutely. 
You mentioned fear and anxiety being kind of the most prevalent manifestations of your grief. And just you say a little bit more about the role that they've played for you? Yeah. Fear for me is the most accessible feeling when it comes to grief. For as long as I can remember, I've had anxiety when it comes to death, which I think partly is because I can't really remember or access feelings before I was 12 you know, before my dad's death, I don't have this concept of my being of like before and after a death. Um, I just sort of like (laughs) my existence of being a conscious human really stems from after 12 years old for me. So for as long as I can really remember feeling fear in relation to death has always been there about my own death. I think about the death of those closest to me those feelings and anxiety, that fear is part of the reason why I realized I needed to start (laughs) like talking about it, giving air to it. Even with spaces to process, like fear still creeps in. If somebody, if I haven't heard from somebody, can't get through to them for a while, they were expected by a certain time. You know, my brain's like they died. Or if I get a text from a family member uh, that says, you know, call me ASAP. I'm like, somebody died. I'm calling them. They're going to tell me somebody died. Uh, (laughs) It's just automatic associations. And in relation to my own death, it's probably the worst. The fear is often all consuming, uh, where it's even difficult to think about something like organ donation. I did sign up. I'm an organ donor now. (laughs) Uh, But like, I couldn't even like look at that piece of paper to sign it. You know, when I got my organ license, I was like, we're doing it. But, you know, other other end of life plans and wishes are, are hard for me to think about. And it's really in the past three years or so where I've started just, you know, dipping my toe in the water to, to start talking about. So it's it can go from like, I can't even think about this in any capacity to like, OK, I'm giving a little air to it, a little more air to it. So we have talked a lot, not you and I, because this is your first time on the show, but I have talked a lot on the show with other guests about how we never grieve in a vacuum. Like we grieve in the context in which we live and we grieve in the reality of the different identity constellations that we all carry in this world or live in this world. And I was just wondering, like, how do elements of your identity interact with your grief? I think they're really like, two main aspects of my identity uh, that play a significant role in how I interact with grief, how I allow myself to grieve, how I've been allowed to. Um, For one, I think growing up poor uh, and having only recently started to make a livable wage. um, I'm not in a place where I would, you know, survive financially if I got fired suddenly, but I can afford fancy cheese and like cashews at the grocery store, uh, sort of livable wage. Um, So Growing up poor, my my like my family didn't have access to or capacity for mental health support. Uh, so when my dad died, nobody talked to me about it. No family, you know, outside of going to the services, uh, you know, life just carried on. I didn't even have like a school counselor that processed things with me, which in retrospect, I feel it's kind of odd. Um, <laughs> but things just kept going. And similarly with my brother, I had just started a new job. I, so basically I was unemployed for a few months after graduating with my master's living in New York city, which like is not a place to be when you have no money. It's really miserable actually, but I had just got this job offer uh, and was set to start on a Monday. 
and I found out my brother had died on a Saturday, Saturday right before I was supposed to start. And one, I'm thinking about this complicated relationship that I have with my brother. So I'm like, I don't even know what services are going to look like for that. And starting this new job, how do you tell your future slash current employer uh, that this person who's your brother, which like general assumed relationships, if you said your brother died, people would be like, oh my God, like, I'm so sorry. But thinking about my complicated relationship with my brother, much less close to me than I would consider some of my friends. How do I tell them? Should I tell them about this dynamic, this relationship? <laughs> you know what? So anyways, I ended up writing an email uh, explaining that my brother had died and that I wasn't entirely sure what time off would need to look like, but was inquiring about bereavement, time off, how much does one get who's a brand new person? I um, was basically told, I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, do you want to push back your start date? We can't guarantee bereavement leave for you as a new employee. And I'm like, I can't afford to take time off. Like I can't afford to push back the start date. So I started and, you know, walked into a brand new job having to be, you know, charismatic. And I'm the, like the new person, I'm meeting new people and like, have the like heavy weight of this just on my mind and you know additionally with with my brother's death I I had mixed feelings about how to observe this uh how to transition how to close this in my brain you know that he had died um and usually for me I think that I would think about a funeral or a wake um but because my family didn't have money. Nobody really, and growing up poor, nobody really had financial literacy. Uh, so there's no life insurance. There's no, you know, nothing. So crowdfunding uh, for my brother's cremation and service. It wasn't something that I started the GoFundMe page for, but I ultimately decided to share. Um, and I have to say, as somebody who's still not in a place where I can be paying for people's funerals, it sucks having to crowdfund I've crowdfunded for three family members' funerals in the past five years. It sucks. <laughs> and it feels like humiliating to a certain degree, especially it's been a number of family members for me to share. That's just so prevalent when I think about the amount of time I'm allowed to grieve. Um, again, like literal time off in a society where it just doesn't make sense to me that we have three days bereavement time or four days bereavement time if you're at a good company that allows you bereavement time, paid time off, and then what? Back to the grind. I'm really struck by what you said of because you were a newer employee too, almost like you're not a legitimate employee yet. And so your grief has no legitimate space in our company. Yeah. Like probationary period. Like, okay, death apply your like still probationary employee like we don't make a special exception for you so yeah that was just a like really gross feeling and you know ultimately foreshadowed my experience uh with the policies at the organization <laughs> but that's another topic entirely as well um but yeah so like growing up poor really plays a significant role in like the capacity the language, the time off, you know, whatever it might look like for me, like I had never had conversations about death prior to somebody's death happening or after somebody's death happening. And it certainly wasn't something that my parents had time to talk to me about 
in working jobs and being exhausted from the day-to-day -day life. I want to eventually have that shifted in my life, um, but even most recently with my grandmother's death, having to crowdfund for that as well. And it was something I, I knew was coming and still did not have the amount of money for it. Um, I think the other aspect of my identity is, is my gender identity, being a trans masculine person, uh, somebody who's often read as a man or a cisgender man in particular, and growing up and being raised as a girl. Um, I started my transition when I was 18. Uh, so really spent a good chunk of my life uh, living as a girl and being, you know, conformed into, into the social norms of girlhood, being sexually objectified as a teenager and a young adult, and, and then having this huge physical transition component that's certainly been so profound when it comes to my grief and the way that I interact with it and how others perceive me. One, just being in relation to my dad, uh, I often think about since he died when I was 12 uh, and I was like the girl of my family, of my siblings. You know, my, my mother always shared that you know, she waited until she had a girl to stop having kids. Like I was daddy, little, daddy's little girl growing up. Um, like my dad was my best friend to like being, for lack of a better word, a man uh, and thinking about my dad in being a man and being an adult uh, and using him as a model uh, for, you know, I don't have kids, but I think about my dogs and like being a, a dog dad to them. Um, but also just like uh, somebody, my dad is somebody who put himself after everyone else and often cared about those around him. He was very selfless. I honestly think to a fault, but I often try to embrace those qualities that he had and um, mirrored them in my own life. But I, I often wonder, you know, what, what would he think <laughs> of me, of my transition? You know, would he have been accepting of it? Uh, would he have come around to it? If not, would he be proud of me? What's What's your hunch, Everett? Um, I'd like to say yes. Uh, I think I feel proud of me uh, and I often keep him in mind. And he's always been like a a compass, if you will, for me and in, in how I've developed my, you know, morals and, uh, ethics. Uh, with that in mind, I, I do think he would be proud of me. Like, I have a hunch that he'd probably be like somebody who doesn't quite understand what transitioning is, but would ultimately be like, I love my kids no matter what sort of thing. Most recently with, with my grandma going to her, her services and her funeral due to COVID, we didn't have, you know, people can go up and speak at a service sometimes. And we, we had that, but because of COVID, you chose one person to go up and speak. And it was originally my cousin, who's a few years younger than me, who offered to do it. So I sent her the speech that I wanted her to read on my behalf. Um, but when the, the day came, and I don't blame her for this, uh, she handed it off to one of our, I don't know what it's called, but like, I guess he's a cousin, but he's like a generation older than us. He read all of the words that people had shared. And when it came time to read my segment 
for whatever reason, this man chose to read it in third person instead of first person. And instead of saying, you know, this is what Everett wrote, I'm going to read it in first person, like as his own words, he changed it to third person and uh, misgendered me and used the wrong name for me, <laughs> which I'm like, literally how, <laughs> how can you do that? Like just logistically, if your brain is on like autopilot, how, um, but it was absolutely mortifying. And I could just, my cousin felt so bad. She was just like staring at me like, are you okay? Like, do you want me to go talk to? And I was just like, you know, again, thinking about being really mindful and intentional with my grief, like, yes, that was super upsetting. And I had to like do some deep breathing in the moment. Like I'm in a church. My grandma's like casket is right there. I'm also a pallbearer. I can't just like leave the function. I have to like remain calm to an extent that I like very deliberately calm myself down, check my breathing. I was like, no, I want to see this through. I'm going to be here. I want to go to the funeral. I'm not going to take this personally. But a cis person <laughs> likely wouldn't have to think about something like that, um, you know, and, and he, he didn't even know he messed up. He didn't apologize. And that was something where it was like, I, I was already nervous going into it, seeing these people who I hadn't seen since I was probably 10 years old and not letting any of that stop me from being there because it was about me and my grandmother. And that was most important to me. So making that deliberate choice to be there, having that really terrible experience and like moving through it and finishing out uh, the services to, to be there for my grandmother. But yeah, it's just like, nobody else is thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. Like, what's come on. And I think that's such a vital point to make of how all the added layers of thought that has to go into like, what is this going to be like for me? How do I, you know, center what I'm here for and my values to honor my grandmother, but how do I also take care of and protect myself and my identity? Those are all things, like you said, people are not having to think about if they don't have that particular layer of identity expression. And I just think about the, the cost, not just the monetary cost, but like the emotional, physical, mental cost of that and how that just compounds into the grief that people are already carrying about the death of the person. Absolutely. I think one of the saving graces of this experience, not that I have to like put a silver lining to it, uh, is that I very clearly know that my grandmother loved me and supported me. And she was one of the first family members I came out to. At that time in my life, I was like really into recording everything in my life. And <laughs> I'm putting it on YouTube. Um, but I had recorded when I came out to her in the conversation. Um, so I actually have it saved and nobody can tell me otherwise. <laughs> like here it like here it is. So like, you know, you can misgender me, but like ultimately I know that my grandmother loved me and like saw me as her grandson and never, you know, she had dementia. So, you know, she started losing names in general, but like never misgendered me or ca- called me the wrong name. So just like having that. That's my center grounding fact. It's like my grandmother loved me uh, unconditionally and affirmed me while she was alive. So you're not going to mess this up for me, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Everett, a little earlier, you mentioned that 
as you went through your transition that not only did you sort of shift how you were orienting with your grief, but other people, the world was responding to you differently. And I'm curious if you've noticed how the world, the world, like your community, society, Mm -hmm. people in your life have um, shifted their expectations for you around how you grieve, how you express your grief. Yeah, I think most notably, I think particularly being in a group setting sometimes and talking about grief, like I can get lumped in by unintentionally lumped in with like men of like, oh yeah, men don't talk about their feelings. My brothers don't talk about their feelings either when it comes to grief. Like you don't cry. Like all these things where it's like, because I'm mask, uh, masculine, that people um, slap these labels also onto me or um, expectations for behavior I happen to not be able to access feelings super well and have sort of been ingrained to not think about grief since I was 12. So like, to me, my process, my inability to like access feelings has much, much so to do with my um, very individualized experience of how I've related to grief and particularly being poor more so than my gender identity. It's, it's socially acceptable for me not to have feelings or communicate feelings, or I do have feelings. I just have a hard time accessing them and often wish I could, you know, access them or put them into words or let them out. Um, but I, I will note when I was at my, my grandma's service, I actually, I didn't cry the whole thing uh, until the very end. <laughs> I was, um, it was the transition from the wake to the funeral. And uh, the wake was like two doors down from the church. And the funeral director said, okay, like everybody say your last goodbyes. Because I was also a pallbearer. I was, I was going to be there no matter what. But I watched my grandma's older sister say bye to her Oof, and it hit me right in the feels as someone's like 97 she just was like bye sissy I love you and I was just like oh no <laughs> like you know I, I just like started crying at that point and then just like having to say goodbye you know to the open casket version of my grandma I just really started crying and then I got in line with the five other dudes to be a pallbearer. I felt so uh, self-conscious in that moment. I don't think it's not socially acceptable for a grandson to be crying, um, but just the fact of standing with five men and being the only person like crying, I was like, okay, I have to like put it together. <laughs> I have to, you know, be a pallbearer. But I also just felt in that moment, just really alone. And there, there were a few people crying actually during the whole thing. So I think that that made me feel even a bit more self-conscious too, just thinking about gender norms and how I was, was being perceived to be like, okay, you got to suck it up, do, do your job, be a man, sort of toxic masculinity ideals. So Everett, in this moment, how are you tending to your grief or not tending to your grief? Um, in just like the state of being right now, it's easy to, for me in some ways to not tend to it because there's a dumpster fire happening every day. It feels like, so constantly pulling energy and attention. And in a lot of ways, I think 
some of those dump, dumpster fires are uh, going to ignite feelings of grief and bring them more present, uh, even if for someone like me, it might not always be conscious. I think tending for me these days looks like one allowing the feeling to come when it does <laughs> and moving through it as it comes. I think especially I'm constantly thinking about my dad, constantly thinking about my grandma, uh, and even for the things with my brother, allowing feelings to come and go. Ideally, I don't always do it, but giving myself time to feel them um, and not try and distract myself. Uh, maybe I write about it. Maybe I just sort of feel it and don't say anything out loud. But some of the little things I've been doing are getting access to more information and, and photos of my dad when he was alive and, and photos of my brother that I have when he was little, photos of my me and my grandmother when I was little, pulling those out, getting those from family members, getting them from the internet, from folks who have been sharing who knew my dad when he was younger and displaying them when I can, or at least just taking time to like save them on my phone. Uh, so I have some photos up behind me. I have like a little um, altar space, like through that door behind me. I have like trans pendant thing. Cause I think about all the trans people who complete suicide, who are murdered. I have um, a photo of me and my dad that's framed in there. I have a photo of my grandmother. I have a photo of my brother, uh, some sage that's been drying out for a while uh, and a candle in there and you know some days it's just like I'm gonna light that candle and keep it going throughout the day and in some ways you know that's sometimes the only capacity I have to attend to my grief. Everett can I sneak in one more question for you? For sure. So you were talking a lot about photos and I was just thinking that's another aspect of when someone dies, we might think it might be a pretty simple process. If you look at photos of the person, of you and the person, and like, who knows what kind of feelings that might bring up for people who are grieving, but it's like a tangible thing to do. And I was just wondering, thinking through, like, I know friends in my life who are trans, for some of them, like looking at photos of themselves, when the world saw them in a very different way, or their gender expression was forced to be a very a different way is really painful. And I wonder what that's, this is like another layer of complication and grief of like, this is not just a simple, oh, I look at this photo of me and my dad and just wonder what that's been like for you. Yeah, I do think um, it's a mixed bag. I think in relation to my grandma, right? So she's been around me the longest in relation to the closest people to me who have died. Um, so there are photos of me from high school, which like, to me is, I feel the most dysphoric uh, when I look at those pictures. Um, so if it's me in my graduation cap in high school, I'm like, absolutely not. I forgot those photos existed. Often the photos that I have with, with my grandma are either baby, you know, photos, which I feel kind of neutral towards. <laughs> Something my grandma loved to do actually was like dress me up in like frilly pink outfits which I just think is silly more so than anything else like it's like clear that I had no control over my presentation <laughs> at that point in my life and also I feel like babies are kind of agender you're just sort of a baby um so I think I don't I don't have any strong feelings when it comes to those photos and I, I'm grateful to say with my grandma I do have some photos of after I graduated college with her where I feel much more 
affirmed and, and comfortable sharing. And with my dad, you know, I think it'd be kind of a cool experiment. I've heard of uh, some folks who Photoshop photos to be gender affirming, particularly with uh, folks who have died to have, you know, these mementos in a way that feels less dysphoric or more affirming. So I think that'd be an interesting experiment and I'm not opposed to it. Uh, But I think with my dad, I'm just, I have very few photographs with him. I I maybe have, I have less than 10. So to me, all of them are precious. And I think the, the takeaway for me in that is like, I have this like evidence of my bond with my dad and like here we are physically close in it or, you know, we're doing this thing together. And in, in relation to my dad, I know myself to be like daddy's little girl. So gender's weird and complex, <laughs> but like, you know, I don't, it doesn't feel invalidating, even though that's like the narrative I have uh, in the photos and in relationship to my dad. Um, it's more so like, yes, being daddy's little girl is a very gendered concept, but to me, I hear and I feel like a close bond with my dad, like a child and dad having like a unconditionally loved and supportive relationship. And that's ultimately what shines through in the photos as well. Well, Everett, thank you for letting me sneak in that unexpected question. (laughs) And, you know, just feeling really grateful for, as I mentioned at the beginning, everything it took for you to not only get to the Dougie Center for Peer Grief Support Group, but to this moment in time of having this conversation with me, of sharing your experience with our listeners out there. Just, yeah, I feel really honored to be in conversation with you today. Thank you. The feeling is mutual. Thank you for the little nudges and ass over the years. <laughs> and listeners out there, I say it each and every time. Thank you so much for being part of our community, for listening to the show, for sharing episodes with people that you think might find it to be helpful. It just means a lot to know that you're out there listening and making the show mean something. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. It's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. It's also the website for Dougie Center where you can find information about our local peer grief support group programs, programs we're aware of around the country and the world, and also a ton of free downloadable resources like tip sheets, activity sheets, and all of the past episodes of Grief Out Loud. And I'm also excited to share with you that this podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Steffen Endowment Fund. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.